Hi folks, a quick announcement before the show today. First up, events. We've got three events coming up and they're all in person. I think I said earlier in the year that this was going to be the year of the face-to-face catch-up and it certainly seems to be going that way. So, Thursday the 13th of June, this is for you Brisbane friends. So the Brisbane Take On Board Meetup will be on Thursday the 13th of June, an informal gathering of listeners, program alumni, friends and connections. It's a free event, so come along. Next up, the 18th of July, this is for our Warnable and Great South Coast Take On Board Friends, an event run in conjunction with Leadership Great South Coast and Bernadette Northeast. Governance, from fundamentals to advanced practice. Super early bird tickets for this event close on the 10th of June, so get on it. Then the third event, a bit further down the track, the 22nd of August. This is for our Sydney friends, a Take On Board meetup in Sydney. Details of all of these events are on my website. There's a link to that in the show notes and I would love to see you at one or all of them. And a second quick announcement, a shout out to the new Take On Board Kickstarter alumni, Alex Cuthbertson, Anne Wallington, Audrey Umity, Ebony Worth, Emma Bonser, Helen Rizzoli, Julia O'Reilly, Kath Harris, Leah Bramhill, Nisha Amanala, Susan Fitoza and Yaz Volra. What an incredible group of people. I cannot wait to hear about the next steps that you're taking to the boardroom and I have no doubt you're all going to make an amazing contribution. Okay, that's it for today. Now, on with the show. Today on the Take On Board podcast, you're hearing from Liz Kelly about the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And by wonderful coincidence, Liz was also the very first person to sign up to my very first Board Accelerator program way back in 2017. Well, in fact, she would have signed up in 2016 for the program in 2017. So that's awesome because today I'm announcing the 2021 program. So I should have asked her about the program in the podcast. But anyway, perhaps you can just imagine this in her voice because it's the testimonial she wrote after the program. Imagine Liz's voice now. I was a member of Helia's Board Accelerator program and found it fantastic. I enjoyed having the ability to discuss practical ways of implementing good governance. It has improved my confidence and effectiveness as a board member and having the calibre of other participants to share and garner ideas from was incredible. The women attending the program came from a diverse array of backgrounds which added value to the experience and I look forward to continuing to share ideas and thrash out issues with them in the future. Thank you, Helia. Feels weird saying that to myself, but anyway. Thank you, Helia, for providing this opportunity and making it an extremely worthwhile experience. I encourage women to join Helia's Board Accelerator Program so we can continue to add value and diversity to boards and therefore improve performance of organisations. So there you go. I wish I'd asked her that in her voice, but... I would love you to come and join us for 2021. It's all via Zoom and there's a range of times so you can join us from wherever you are in Australia or indeed the world. Super early bird prices are on until the end of November. There's a link in the show notes with all of the information and the times and dates. I look forward to welcoming you to the program. Anyway, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halia Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable and exciting. 
yet it can also be really lonely, challenging and hard. So here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking to Liz Kelly about the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, and what that means for the sector. First, let me tell you about Liz. Liz is on the boards of Breast Screen Victoria, and she's just also joined the board of the Stroke Association of Victoria. She's previously been president of the Association for Children with a Disability, and she's also previously been on the boards of Children and Young People with a Disability, the Disability Service Board, and the Victorian Disability Advisory Council. Liz is qualified in the divergent fields of finance and human resources. She's been a director of her own consulting business, specialising in organisational change and conflict management. Liz has been involved at a governance and operational level in the community, particularly the disability sector, and she has an absolute commitment to advocating for the rights of the more vulnerable in our society. Liz, I think she knows this, Liz is also the, I guess, informal number one ticket holder for the Board Accelerator program. She was the very first person to sign up when I created that program, I think, back in 2017. So thanks for being with me from the start, Liz. And indeed, welcome to the Take On Board podcast. Oh, thanks, Helia. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. And it's very exciting to know I was a number one ticket holder. I was yeah. wondering what that was going to <laughs> I was wondering what I was number No, um, it was a great experience. When I put it out, you were the very first person to ring and say, oh, I'm, I'm wondering whether I should do this program. And we had a chat about it and you said, that's it. I'm signing up. I'll do it as soon as I get home. And you were the very first person. So, yeah, it was great. Number one ticket holder. <laughs> So, Liz, before we talk about the National Disability Insurance Scheme and what that means for the sector, I would love to just dig a little bit deeper about you. Can you tell me about your upbringing and what lessons you learned, what you got up to and what influences there was on your life? Yeah, well, I grew up in country New South Wales. Um, I grew up in a, a large family. I'm the youngest of seven. And my primary school was a school of 12 children total. I a bit made the big move to uh, Cootamundra, which is a country town birthplace of uh, Donald Bradman. When I was in year seven, uh, the whole family moved in and um, my mother was always very much involved in the community. She was a real community person. She, um, you know, was the treasurer of the CWA. She was always out helping people she was involved in the church and cleaning the church. She was very much involved in setting up the retirement village and then and the actual um, Kudamundra nursing home, which she now is a member of. Uh, she's actually well, she's not a member of. She actually stays there. Is always sort of why am I here? And um, <laughs> she's the number one ticket holder there. It's the Kelly family way. She was always, I guess, a very much community person. I learned a lot from her as a as a very strong country woman, um, so very much the matriarch, uh, but also her 
um, her very much input into the community and looking after those less fortunate than her, which also came from her father. Back in the Depression, she always spoke about my grandfather picking up, you know, swaggies and bringing them home for a meal, which meant my grandmother often missed out on a meal. So we always sort of had that, those value sets within our family of looking after people that are more vulnerable or less fortunate than, than ourselves. Mm, and something that you now fly, similarly fly the flag for um, from that family influence. And I, I think I'd said in the introduction, so you were president of the Association for Children with a Disability. Was that your first board? Well, it actually coincided with the the Disability Services Board as well. So both kind of started at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd been asked to go on the Association for Children with a Disability as at the same time, and there was sort of some concern that there may have been a conflict, but I got fairly good clearance from the Disability Services Commissioner that being on both boards would be really useful. Mm-hmm. And indeed, presumably then going on to become president. Yes, yeah, yeah. So tell us, tell us about that, joining the board and then becoming president. Well, it was an interesting time because when I first joined the um, Association for Children with a Disability, it was very much a passionate organisation run mostly uh, the main board members were mothers and um, of, of young people with uh, disability and their meetings were always held at about 10 o'clock after everyone had dropped off their young ones to school and didn't finish until often 2.30 in the afternoon and we didn't actually get really get through the agenda. I started there as treasurer and I noticed that Really, the organisation was sort of really running hand-to-mouth. Great organisation, had an absolute great name in Victoria and with government, et cetera. So it was really well-respected, but it was running pretty tight, um, Mm. sort of scraping around for projects to fund the staffing levels. And I found that that was a significant risk for the organisation and started talking to those risks and... um, at the same time, there was a couple of challenges coming from other organisations and I could see that the organ- the actual, we were getting past what the capacity of the of the board members was, mm. were, were. So, yeah, and at that point, the chairperson was looking to step down and so she was looking at succession planning and the person who was the one male member was the deputy chair and I kind of... I spoke to someone saying, oh, I'm thinking I should go for chair, and I, but I don't want to upset anybody. And anyway, I spoke to him and he said, no, you go for it, you go for it. So that's what happened. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And now in Australia, the National Disability Insurance Scheme has come along. I can't even remember how many years ago now. When, when was it introduced? It was introduced in 2013. Right. Wow, that long ago. Gillard government, would that be yeah. right? Gillard government yeah. just before Rudd came back in. But, yeah, that, mm. that government passed right. it. So, I mean, it's been a major structural reform to the sector, both the organisations and the kind of clients, I guess, of the sector. It's been a major structural reform. Can you maybe just give us the brief summary of what it means, What the national, because we've got listeners that are not just in Australia but overseas as well, and then what what should boards be thinking about that are in the disability sector? What has it meant for them? I think probably the main change for the, the NDIS was, one, there was a significant injection of funding mm. into the sector, 
But really the key change was instead of the money sort of going to service providers in a block-funded model, if you like, it was really going to the individuals. And it was Mm. the premise of, of it is about empowering individuals to have choice and control in an environment where they can choose their providers and for the services that they require. That was the key element. So from a governance perspective, it was a significant change in funding Mm. structures for all organisations really. And what's still, I guess, being sorted through and I think from a governance perspective, there was a lot of a lot of challenge for organisations to adapt to a more, I guess, even though people say they're very client-centred and they are in their approach to the support that they often give. You know, a lot of the service providers mostly out there are good at understanding their clients and working with them in a person-centred way. Really, in the background, the systems didn't support that. So it was really a systemic issue in many organisations and I still think it is for many organisations to adapt their systems to a more individualised way. So they were used to getting kind of block funding from government. Their key really customer was their government was the government when it comes to back end. Mm-hmm. So it was really about quality, which is important, but, you know, governance around historical financial processes as opposed to being more what I would call more management processes and analysing data and why and how. Wow. So it really flipped a whole lot of things on their head. It flipped that relationship around from government to the consumer or the client. What's the right terminology? Is it consumer or client or is both used? Both used. I mean, I, I think I think it's interesting within the sector that they really struggled with, I think, what they would consider as being profit tiering type commercial type terms which I think I finally got through to someone saying well so for years I worked in private sector for retail I said but what's the difference between selling a t-shirt when you're talking back-end systems as a product and selling say a um, support direct support there's a whole lot of difference in the product but the actual back-end isn't isn't so different you still need you need so they really struggled I think and still struggle with it's that sort of value set and mission set compared to a commercial thinking Mm. and thinking that commercially being commercial is bad yeah and so that's really interesting I think for me coming because I came from a very hardline commercial background for years and I think there's a lot of uh, lessons that can be learned from those sectors. Um, mm. And people think that these profit organisations are bad organisations. I, I worked for a family-based organisation who had a great value set and how they manage their organisation and work with their staff were incredible. I'm of the view that I, I'm not a fan of the terminology not-for-profit, I must say. I much prefer profit for purpose or something along those lines because organisations need to be sustainable, which means, you know, you don't need to be packing away millions of dollars in assets or whatever it may be, and you're certainly not distributing it to shareholders, but you need to be sustainable, which means whatever it is that's coming in can't be less than what you have going out or you're not going to be around to deliver whatever the amazing service is that you're delivering. So for organisations that have been grappling with this, this, you know, incredibly 
you know, transformational change. What have you seen in those organisations, and particularly at the board level, that's worked well to help them grapple with this change? I think it's really kind of acknowledging, well, some of the things is acknowledging the good work that people do and acknowledging the consumers, mm. clients, and understanding really what it is that they want. What I grappled with to begin with is a lot of people felt that they should have the answers on the board. Mm. Um, they should be the ones with all the answers. And I actually don't think at a board level you can have the answers to something such as significant. So it's really is about involving key components and hearing from the front line as well. Mm. I think that was a big area that I that I found really interesting in my work in the sector, but also on the board in the se- in on boards, is that you'd go to meetings and some people working in some of the service providers so so used to say so well I run the gardening program so if, if what if the clients choose not to do gardening does that mean I'm out of work that's a really important thing is to listen to your key frontline they mm. know the clients they know what they want mm. and if, if you're t- thinking about from a business perspective I think that's a really important part and and, and actually the, I think you know some of the service providers that's that actually have survived the best is people who did have probably quite a bit of big asset base. Mm-hmm. But currently now I'm seeing um, like the Stroke Association being on their board, you know, and just already like people with innovative ideas and that word is overused a lot, but people who are willing to be innovative and analyse data and, and come up with new products are starting to pop up and will be successful in the future. For example, for our son, like for Connor, we're looking at he's about to go into the adult world Mm. and into that. We're looking for more innovative products, something different, not just your, you know, general day services and things. So I think those organisations and and from a board perspective, being able to analyse your data and having systems that can analyse that well we're going to come back to that in a minute because I really want to hear about the finances and what people should be looking for there. But you've just mentioned Connor and it might be good if you can just give us an introduction, uh, an introduction to Connor without him being here. But um, I mean, part of your, you know, you're an absolute powerhouse in your advocacy. And I heard before that part of that is from your family. But part of that, I think, is from Connor as well. So can you tell us about Connor and how that's got you involved in these things? Yeah, well, it's interesting how I was saying how my back background was uh, all about, you know, value sets sitting, standing up for those less fortunate than ourselves. Or it's like Connor came along and he goes, oh, well, you're such a, you know, hint of human rights. Mum, here's one for you. It's like I went, oh, no. <laughs> I didn't, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I think it's really good to, to do that. But, I think, you know, so it took a while to sort of get used to it. Connor's, uh, he has, and I hate to kind of put people in boxes, but Connor has a severe and profound disability, so he has very high needs, but he has the most uh, amazing way of connecting with people and people seem to just love being around him because he he has joy, loves fun, loves a good time. And ultimately, you know, a lot of people talk about how they lose friends because, you know, other families don't understand what it's like to have a child with you know, a disability, but we've actually made and met some amazing people and, and so, many, so many of the great people in the community 
sector and people like yourself who you don't think I would have ever met if it wasn't for Connor. There's always a sort of a mm. link back to Connor. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. um, he's been a really fabulous addition at times. It's, it, you know, I'm not denying that it's tough at times because there is a lot of fight you've got to have and sometimes you just get a bit tired of it. It sounds like he's, he's um, brought a lot of joy and not only that, but... Um... You know, Liz, you're always up for a good fight. So you've got, you've you've uh, managed to bring those very strong advocacy skills, shall we say, uh, to the fore in in being his mum. Yeah, and I think that's the one thing I'm always conscious of that we're educated. We live in the inner east of Melbourne. English is our first language, mm-hmm. and at times the system has really, I felt really beaten up by the system. So I can only imagine people with less resources and so I always am conscious of that fact as well that um, we've had some really good experiences we've had really good services you know I know that we're a small percentage and and I think I'm always conscious of that as well Mm. and that's why I guess I do join organizations from a systemic point of view. So I'm interested then in his flip to consumer led services and so on for those families or consumers who English might be their second language or they're just not able to wrangle the system as well. What's your observations about how people like that have coped in this transformation? Has it been more difficult for some people? Yes, yeah, and there's evidence. There's been evidence and I'm not sure how much full research has been done, but there are evidence of differentiations in packages. I worked for an organisation, an early intervention organisation, for a while, um, last not last year, the year before, and I did some work for them and they had clear evidence that people from a less advantaged area were getting smaller packages for kind of like needs. So they do struggle. There are advocacy groups out there, but to try and find that, it, it is a real challenge and, and that's going to continue to be a challenge of the system and the sector is to yeah. ensure that the people with, that don't have the same sort of voice, that can be a little problem in the sector that the sort of same people get sort of rolled out or trotted out as, as if you like, as we've listened, this person is, you know, a person with a disability. But, you know, we've got to be careful that that doesn't represent all yeah. people. All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to swing back now to this data and the finances. But Part of this transformation in the way the organisations run and the funding model runs, I imagine that for boards that meant they probably needed to have different data in front of them and be looking at it in a different way. So can you can you talk us through your observations there and, and your advice for um, board members in that? I think there's still some work to do in the area, but I, th- I think the key probably element is having aligning your strategy, so having a strategic approach to, as an organisation, how you are going to measure success into the future when you're looking at a, a consumer-led approach. So previously, you get your finances and it'd be your P&L and it'd be all about, you know, government funding here and mm. and really it was kind of historical. It had all happened, whereas mm. I, I think from a board perspective, the, the focus should be on the future and the budget of the future and you should be setting goals around mm. increase in, in income sources, if you like, and what that means. And so interestingly, in the new board that I'm on, they've got that strategic approach, which is this is not, it's sometimes I think 
particularly I've been on boards where it's we've got a budget with what we know, we know we're going to get, but sometimes a budget is about reaching a strategic goal. So to actually it might be investing some of your reserves in a particular project that you're going to manage very specifically mm. because you you know you want an outcome from that. Yep. If that makes sense. So it's more a strategic approach and what I call a more management accounting approach that you're kind of looking at, okay, so this happened this month. What do we need to do in the next month to reach our strategy or do we need to pull something back out of this? So it actually is. And the real importance of having a really good finance subcommittee, I think, who can work through that strategically. Just to add, I think often smaller kind of, organisations get into um, that finance subcommittee becomes also the fundraising committee and that's a very different committee if you like or yeah it's a different remit getting getting yes that's exactly getting the money in versus I mean finance is also about that but it's more about managing what comes in rather than getting it in Actually, just because you've touched on finance committees, what's your advice around finance committees around should it be finance and risk or should they be separate? How many people? Should there be external members on there? What's your thoughts around the the makeup and scope of finance committees? I think finance committees should be finance committees and they should look after the finance. They should consider risk is every every director's responsibility. So... Mm -hmm. That shouldn't be offloaded to the finance people. The risk, I think I've learnt from another board, is that if you leave the risk to the finance people, they just talk about finance risk. And the risk of an organisation is a, there's a significant broad remit around risk as well. So I believe the, you know, the finance committee, depending on the size of the organisation, obviously it needs to be made up from of people who know around finances, but I also think it's a really good idea to have people who aren't necessarily, that's not their qualification because they do ask, that, that, that needs to be managed appropriately, but they really do ask questions that are sometimes as an accountant, if you like, you take for granted. And it gives you that experience to then be able to improve your reporting to the board. I'm pleased to hear that. I'm always a big fan of having the non-finance people on the finance committee and even sometimes reporting to board. Nothing like presenting the finances to board to get people's head across them. What about external members on finance committee, people who aren't on the board? What's your view about that? You know, if they can add value, I think that's a really important, Mm. yeah, if they can add value to, uh, and co-opting, it depends on, on, you know, what the scope is of the finance subcommittee. And I think if there is a particular project or something that you're particularly looking at, I think it's really useful to have external people. Well, I've had um, people seconded into mm. subcommittees for a particular time. You know, yeah. I think consumers is always, you know, that's always a useful, a useful thing. I mean, it's all about having the structure and the frameworks around it so people understand the confidentialities and, and, and their role within it, and it's very clear. We've covered so many fabulous things here today, which I think will be helpful not just for those that are on disability organisations, but also others going through transformation. And, you know, we're recording this in August 2020, the middle of the beautiful global pandemic, which is bringing all sorts of change to all sorts of organisations. So some of the things that you've touched on will be useful for any organisation going through a transformation. 
So what are the main points you want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today? I think really if you're running, I mean, one is if you're running a client-centred organisation, consider the clients in the centre of everything your organisation does, not just the direct support or the direct product. It's actually building the client into every process that you do, you think about. As you know, I'm working for a union and it's been interesting looking at the members' journey and, and attraction strategies, et cetera. And so it's, it's thinking about the member, the client, whoever it is, into every process that you put in place, where does the client sit in this? As a bean counter, as an accountant, like I really think having really good strategy around your finances and a really good data and data analysis is, is really important and accountability in that space. Fabulous. Thank you so much for joining us here at the Take On Board podcast today. Like I said, I'm sure the kind of insights you've given today to the Take On Board community will be incredibly valuable, whether they're in the disability sector or not. So thank you for joining us here at Take On Board today. Thank you, Helia. It's been an absolute pleasure. Hi there, it's Helia. That's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So it's great to be able to share these conversations that I'm having with these amazing group of women with you. Now, can I ask a favour? Could you share this podcast with someone you know? Perhaps you can share it with some of your board colleagues or someone else that you know that's interested in exploring all things boards and governance. With your help, we can grow the Take On Board community. Last but not least, if you want to continue the conversation, you can also join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group, where there's lots of great discussions, tips, tricks and resources being shared. I would love it if you can join in the conversation there. You can find it by searching Take On Board in Facebook. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation.